This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Bass Strings. Dunlop Bass Strings are made in California and designed by the players of Dunlop to sound and feel the way a string should. With deep lows, strong fundamental punchy mids, and articulate highs. Dunlop Bass Strings offer a complete line with standard nickel and stainless round wounds, flat wounds, and super brights. They're also available in short, medium, and long scales. So go to jimdunlop.com and check out Dunlop Bass Strings. What is up, my friends? Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. This is a place for all of us bass freaks to chat it up, gain a little insight and inspiration, and have some fun with some great bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today is a very, very special occasion, not just because of our guests, but also because it marks the season one finale of Bass Freaks. A very special cheers and thank you to all of our incredible guests and to all of our incredible listeners. We really, really appreciate you. If this is your first time tuning in, be sure to check out all those previous discussions I've had with some amazing, truly amazing bass players. And for all of you who've been around with us since the beginning, thank you. And please spread the word and keep a lookout for season two because we will be back before you know it. Okay. Now for today's guest, this is a man who needs no introduction whatsoever. He is a legend and we are extremely honored to have him, Mr. Marcus Miller. Welcome to Bass Freaks, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, nice to be here, man. Bass freaks. <laughs> Bass freaks. Yes, sir. <laughs> How's everything hey, going? You good? Everything's good, man. Just um, you know, just starting to do some some shows again, finally. And uh, in the meantime, you know, I've been uh, writing music, you know, doing some film and TV, composing stuff like that. Amazing, amazing. So, okay, let's let's just. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I'm a fanboy. Sorry to say. I actually, you know what? I'm not sorry to say that. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of yours. And, Thank you, man. You, you know, so you're one of my bass heroes. I actually bought one of your signature basses way back. Excellent. Yeah, man. Um, <laughs> Which one do you have? I, I had the um, your Fender. You got and the I, Fender? I actually, yeah, I still have it, actually. Somewhere a right four here. or a five? Four. Nice, man. Yeah. So, but I want to know who's your bass very first bass hero my first bass hero was um i thought my first bass hero was jermaine jackson michael's brother oh, okay who played bass in the jackson five which is the group that blew my mind when they first hit the scene i was like the same age as michael you know and he was like 10 or 11 so his brother was 14 and he's playing the hell out the bass it turned out to be james jameson you know, like, I was going to say, was it him? <laughs> you know what I mean? It turned out yeah. to be James Jameson on most of those Motown records that the, you know, the Jacksons were on Motown. So it was that band, the Funk Brothers. Um, then I found out that some of those bass lines, some of the early ones, wasn't even Jameson. It was a guy named Wilton Felder. Oh, Wilton okay. Felder plays saxophone. He's not here anymore, but he played saxophone for the Crusaders, right? The, the jazz. Uh-huh jazz group the crusaders but he doubled on bass and you know every once in a while if jameson couldn't make it he was playing bass so it's crazy man one time i you know as the years went by i ended up playing with the crusaders on some record dates you know and uh with the crusaders uh wilton would go to the bass player usually and say hey this is how the, the bass line goes and he'd either sing it or he'd write it out some i said man I know about you. Don't try to don't try to fake the funk, man. I just handed him my bass <laughs> and said, "Just play it." 
you know, you don't have to say nothing, just play it. So he played the bass line for me. I said, I got it. That's all we need to do. Cause, uh, how, you know, that must have been a moment, man. How was that? Like seeing that in person, you're handing them the bass. And and did it bring back all those just sounds and memories from the moments that yeah, you listened? Yeah, man, it brought back all the sounds and memories. You know, he played the bass like the old school guys played it, you know, because most of the old school guys were converts from elect- uh, from upright bass. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. So they played with, with the third and fourth finger locked together, you know what I mean, like upright guys do. And so he played like that, but it was just... It was great because, you know, sometimes he would have trouble explaining to the bass player the feeling of what he wanted. You know what I mean? Because there's so many things you can do with music that you can't do with words. Right. So I just say play it because if you play it, you get the attitude, you get the feeling, you can know which notes are short, which ones are long, you know, all that that stuff to make something feel the way it should feel. So it was a it was an awesome moment. Amazing. Amazing. Have you have you added to that list? of bass heroes or who inspires oh, yeah. so, you? So Jameson, of course, you know what I mean? Because, uh, you know, a lot of the first early records with bass guitar, it was him. So it wasn't even like you thought he was great. You just thought that's what the bass sounds like. You know, you heard Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. You just say, oh, okay, that bass player got to be doing it. You know, he, he's got to be coming <laughs> with it, you know? And then I heard, um, you know, there's a lot of great funk players, man. There was a guy who played with a group called Mandrill. And his name was Fudgy K. And a lot of people don't know about him. But he was just the bass player in this band, Mandrill, which is a super, you know, like killing funk band. Um, Rocco from Tower of Power. I love know, Rocco. Like love Rocco. Yeah, he, he was the man. I just started, just listened to something he did yesterday, which just still sounds fantastic. Um, cool in the Gang. Um, I used to love all their old funk records. Um, a lot of that was... Cool was the bass player in the band, but also his brother Ronald, who was kind of like the mastermind of the group. Sometimes he would play bass on okay. some of those records. I didn't know. Then that. I heard Graham. I heard I heard Larry Graham, and you know he he was making the bass do things that we didn't know the bass could do, clucking, slapping it, and uh, that blew my mind. Um, learned every note, every record, every everything, you know. And then I heard Stanley Clark, who um, was already an incredible jazz bass player picked up an electric bass and then started grabbing some of the stuff from Graham and some of the jazz stuff together, which was um, incredible. And then Jaco Pastores. That's kind of like my main guys when I was coming up. There's a whole bunch of other guys. Alfonso Johnson, Anthony Jackson. Uh, I mentioned Rocco. Um, Pops Popswell, who ended up being the bass player in the Crusaders. He was another great bass player. So, but But those guys are my main guys. All legends. I hadn't heard of what? What did you say his name? Fudgy. Yeah, Fudgy. You know what I mean? Like F U D G I E. I believe. I, 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 I got to check it out. I got man. Check, check out. out. Check out a record called Fence Walk by Mandrill. Mandrill okay. like the name of the band. He's not doing anything like you know technically that's gonna like challenge you, but man, that thing is is funky. You know. <laughs> And he had a he had a, a they had a song called Hang Loose where the baseline was killing. Get it all was killing. Um Manjo was a very underrated, awesome funk band. Amazing. I'm gonna go check it out right after we do this. That's that's awesome. Uh, I I love your sense of um uh melody. Are, are you a singer as well? Uh no, not really. I mean I sing, but but I work with Luther Van Joss and 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 Roberta Flack and Aretha Franklin, 
So I, I know better than to call myself a singer, but <laughs> uh, I work with them. I work with uh, with Luther a lot. We produced all his records and stuff. So, man, I was in there working with him on his vocals. And so um, I read one in one article that Jocko said he was trying to get his bass to sound like Frank Sinatra. Oh, wow. The way Frank Sinatra sang. So I said, okay, well, then I'm going to try to get my bass to sound like Stevie Wonder and Luther Vanchoss. <laughs> yes. You know what? I can hear that, though. In, yeah. I mean, just you sing on the bass. And I have always loved that. And I've always oh, thank you. felt the soul in each one of your notes. So thank you. Yeah. Donnie no, Hathaway, th of course. Thank you, Donnie. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. These are the guys because there's so much phrasing. You know what I mean? A lot of um, guys who play uh, rock or they play jazz, you know, you just play the note. But with blues and soul and R&B, how you play the note is a, a really important. Slide from above it, slide from below it, play it behind the beat, vibrato, no vibrato. You know what I mean? All that stuff goes into it and you start to check it out when you really focus on singers. I That's... Amazing, great advice too for bassists who who can learn something and play the notes, but it for right. some reason it just doesn't sound like what you're listening it's, to. It's hard, man, because yeah. you know what do bass players learn to do first? They learn to play on the beat. They right. learn to lock it in, right? And then when you're singing or you're soloing, everything doesn't necessarily, especially if you're playing a melody, it doesn't necessarily have to be on the beat. Sometimes you pull it back. Sometimes you pull it more back and then you catch up. That's why Larry Graham was so 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 awesome because he played a bass on the beat and he'd be singing behind the beat, you know? <laughs> yes. You know, Sting can do that too. Sting, you know? yes. I, yes. I have tried to do that and I am uh I cannot. So <laughs> you, Yeah, you got you got you know, it's gotta be a lot of it is um one of the things has to be on automatic. So usually the bass you got it so part of your body that's just automatic it's just going you know but it's harder on bass than it is on guitar because you know a lot of guitarists sing but it's more strumming you know you right. don't hear like rhythm guitarists you right. know singing you know it's the guys going dang 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 because that just goes on automatic and then you can sing however you need to sing you know but for Larry Graham to be like you know playing those syncopated bass lines and singing at the same time is that's that's a challenge yes it is You've, I was uh, going through some of the records that you actually played on uh, just before this, and um, I was like, well, truly amazed. I mean, you worked with some of the hugest names in music. Is there anybody that you would like to work with that you haven't? Um, I used to have a list, you know what I mean? Like, man, I can't wait to play with this guy, that guy. Uh, it's not really like that anymore for me. Um, so did you check them off already or? <laughs> I checked most of them off. Nice. Yeah, man. I mean, nice. the ones who were alive at least, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, I would have loved to play with some of the great jazz guys from back in the day. You know, I got a cousin, my dad's cousin, who played piano in the 50s, jazz piano. And he played with Miles. He played with Wes Montgomery, you know. So I would have loved to have been able to sit in with my cousin. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And just show him that that I, that that I was I was getting it together. You know, he passed when I was probably eleven or twelve, so I wasn't even really playing at the time. But I'd have loved to maybe, you know, just at one of our family get-togethers because the family, you know, my father's family was very musical, so 
they all used to get together and perform for each other. I would have loved to just surprise Winton. His name was Winton Kelly. I would have loved to just surprise him and show up with a bass and just kill it. You know what I mean? That's like a little fantasy I had, you know? Yeah. And watch his eyebrows go up like, all right. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be proud. But otherwise, <laughs> man, I'm just looking to, um, you know, make some good music, man, and, and continue to grow, you know? All right. Have you ever been, uh, and I keep saying it and I apologize, but uh, have you ever been starstruck? Because I am a little bit, I haven't met you before and uh, <laughs> we're doing this virtually. So I really appreciate you taking the time. But yeah, have you ever been starstruck or uh, intimidated? Let's see. Uh, first time with George Benson was pretty, uh, whoa, that's George Benson. And first time with Miles Davis, of course. And you know what's funny, man? It's like when you play with George Benson, he starts soloing. In the back of your head, you go, oh, here's another guy playing the Benson licks. Oh, no. <laughs> That's really the real dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if you, you know, you play with somebody whose sound is so familiar because everybody you know tries to play like him. Right. That when you play with the real guy, it's like shifts you out. It's like, wow, no, that's the real thing. So I experienced that with Miles. You know, I experienced that with, um, with Eric Clapton. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he starts playing. Like you've been hearing guys trying to play like Clapton like your whole life. And you go, oh, wait, no. That's him. You know what I mean? Herbie Hancock. Uh, that's an incredible feeling. What was like a pivotal moment when you started to, to, to do all these high profile things? Where was the moment where you were sitting there, you had your bass on and you're like, I can't believe I'm, I'm here right now. Yeah. Um, well, I'm from New York, you know what I mean? So everything happened kind of early because I didn't have to first finish high school or finish college and then move to New York or L.A., you know what I mean, and, and start to make a name for myself. I was making a name for myself. I started early, like beginning of high school, you know? So by the time I was 17, 18, man, I was starting to get some calls. Um, some of it was like because uh, I played like I was from around the way, but I had a formal music education from playing clarinet from fifth grade all the way through college. You know what I mean? So I could read music very well. So the combination of sounding like, you know, you're from the hood or from around the way, you know what I mean? But being able to read whatever they put in front of you, all of a sudden the phone started ringing and it happened real fast. Man. Um, I was in a, I was in a band of a famous flute player named Bobby Humphrey. And she was um, really popular in the late seventies. And, uh, when it came time for her to do an album, I gave her a little tune that I had written, gave it to her on a cassette. She liked the tune and she said, I'd like to record this tune. I'm even going to ask the producer, Ralph McDonald, if uh, he'll let you play bass on that tune. You know, so I said, oh, sweet. He's probably going to say no, but yeah, thanks for asking. And she asked, and he said, okay, we'll, we'll try him out. So I came to the studio, man, and it was the top, top New York musicians on this session. It was Steve Gadd. You know, you heard of Steve Gadd, right? Absolutely, yeah. And Anthony Jackson and Richard T and Eric Gale. These are all the top guys. And Ralph said to the bass player, Anthony Jackson, hey, Anthony, get up. This kid's going to play this song. <laughs> How did Anthony feel about that? Anthony's a gracious, beautiful human being, luckily, because it could have been real bad from there. But anyway, <laughs> Anthony went to the control room. So that was a little extra pressure, but I had written a tune. It wasn't a hard tune to play, you know? So I did my little tune and, uh, and there was no disasters and I got out of there. Um, a year later, I did the same thing. I wrote another tune for Bobby and just wasn't as difficult to, 
request this time for me to play because I had done okay the first time. But this time I put a solo <laughs> in the song. I wrote a bass solo, you know. Nice. So uh, I came down to play. I played a little bit, you know. And the producer, Ralph McDonald, he's a percussionist, really important guy in my career. And he said, man, can you read music? I said, yeah. He goes, don't BS me, man, because I'm getting ready to uh, give your name to some of these, you know, jingle houses, you know, because in New York, the big the big thing was doing jingles in the morning, commercials, music for commercials. So you're playing for Huggies diapers and you're playing for Ford trucks and all this stuff. You do it in the morning. Each one took an hour and then you did another one or maybe three in the morning. But you get royalties, little little checks as long as, a, as the commercials ran on the air. So it was New York musicians bread and butter back then. So he said, don't BS me, man. I need to know that you can read so I can start giving your name to these jingle producers. I said, man, I can read fly shit, man. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. So he said, okay. And he told me to join the answering service that they had at the time. There was no cell phone. So you had to join the service and you would call in to say, you got any work for me? And they say, so-and-so is looking for you from nine to 10. So a couple of weeks later, I called in. I'd been calling every day. There's nothing for me, you know, and a couple of weeks after I called and said, oh, glad, glad you called. We got nine to 10 with a possible 20 at A&R, 48. I said, I don't know what any of that means. Tell me what that is. And they, <laughs> they broke it down for me, you know, A&R on West 48th Street. It's the studio, 9 to 10 a.m. with a possible 20-minute overtime. Anyway, it showed up. It was Ralph, and it was all the guys I had just done those sessions with before. It was all of them. And we played, the, I think it was for the Jamaica Tourist Board. And we did it, and it went fine. And next thing I know, I was playing on 10 jingles a week, you know, every morning. And then all the musicians that you meet on the jingle scene, they started recommending me for record dates that happened later on in the day. And man, within two months, man, I was working from eight, nine in the morning till midnight uh, on, on record dates and, and jingles and then doing jazz gigs in the clubs in New York at night. So it happened really fast. That's amazing. It really is. Um, I mean, not all, how old were you at the time? 18, 19. You know how music is, man. Um, everybody in the music business is always looking for that young kid who has that fresh sound, who can add something contemporary, you know what I mean, to the music. So, uh, you know, I was that guy back in 1970, 78, 79. You know, I'm coming. I can play with my thumb, which was a new thing at the time. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And I could, and I could read music, so it's not like uh, no one had time to send you the music a couple of days ahead of time so you could learn. That wasn't how it worked. Okay. You walked in the studio, you didn't know what it was going to be. It could be uh, a commercial for Cheetos, or it could be Frank Sinatra recording date. You just showed up, and the music's in front of you. Quincy Jones says, okay, gentlemen, let's go. Boom. You know what I mean? That's cool. And we run it down twice. Frank comes in, sings it one time. <laughs> says, okay, gentlemen, thank you. And just bounces. You know what I mean? It was like that. It was Man. like you finish your, your record date, you sign your little form so you can get paid, and you went you went to the next session. You know, it's a crazy scene, man. That's nuts. That is nuts. But you can't get, you can't get that kind of experience anywhere else. Right. Like, it's like playing in seven different bands a week, you know, and everything's being recorded. So everything's very, um, everything has to be really precise. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Your intonation, your tone, you know, jingles, you know, it was important where you stopped your notes. Ah, uh, yeah. And didn't, I mean, You're under the microscope you started, for sure. Where you started, but you had to stop certain things to make it feel the right way, particularly at the end of the song. They would say, okay, gentlemen, last note, 
off on two ends because it had to come under 60 seconds. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we go, <laughs> and stop was almost as loud as the first note. You know what I mean? Yeah. It had to be precise. So, uh, so it was a really good uh, experience for me. So you're 18, 19 years old, doing all these sessions. Um, you're m making some mailbox money. And uh, from then on, you, I'm assuming you start doing some touring and stuff and writing and producing. I met, um, you know, in that whole community of studio musicians, David Sanborn was one of them. Awesome. Luther Vandross was one of them. He was, you, you know, the top background singer at the time. So we all, you know, knew each other. We'd see each other on sessions or uh, see each other passing each other in the studios. So, um, and on Saturdays, I was playing in the Saturday Night Live house band, you know. So mm -hmm. um, this was when Paul Schaefer was a piano player in the band and David Sanborn played saxophone and Howard Shore was the band leader. He, he went on to compose some beautiful music for films. Uh, Sanborn and I were in side night band, so Sanborn would do week gigs. He didn't do weekend gigs. He did weekday gigs so he could get back in town to do Saturday night. So um, I would go out on the road with him. You know what I mean? So it just all kind of grew from this community. And Luther decided to make a, a demo so he could get his own deal. And that demo became his first record, which sold a million copies, and he became a huge star. You know what I mean? So it all came, it all came from there. You know what I mean? And if I had to um, boil it down, I met two drummers, man, in high school. I met a drummer named Kenny Washington, who, although he was our age, you know, 15, 16 years old, he was like a bebop drummer from the 50s, you know? Oh, wow. And uh, still a dear friend of mine, and I talk to him all the time, and he still sounds like he was born in 1951. Yeah, man. No, 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 1940. <laughs> yeah, man, you just can't swing, you know? <laughs> But he encouraged me to, to learn jazz because I was a funk cat in high school. You know, he encouraged me to learn jazz and really opened me up. And then the other drummer was Omar Hakim. And Omar was in the same grade. And uh, he was just a tremendous drummer, even at that age. I mean, I'm sure he's gotten better over the years. But to my ears, he sounded exactly like he plays now. He sounded like that when wow. we were in 11th grade. You know wow. what I mean? He was just tremendous, man. And I was like, hey, man, you know, I'm hanging with you. You know what I mean? Because I need to, I need to advance to your level. You know, we ended up having a band together, and uh, Omar, um, the band that I was in with Omar, had a guitar player who eventually got the gig with Bobby Humphrey, and by, and then he brought me on, and then the Bobby Humphrey introduced me to Ralph McDonald. You know what I mean? So it all kind of grew from my high school experience. That was, you know, the um, the Fiorello, the LaGuardia School of Music in New York. So if I had to figure out a line, that's it. Yeah, okay. So you built these relationships and it just grew from there. Amazing. Right on, man. How do you, so as a producer, um, how does being a bass player inform your work? Um, as a producer, you, you know, different instrumentalists, and this is a horrible generalization, but different instrumentalists have different mentalities. So, um, like if you're if you're the producer, I right? think <laughs> and the band just finished doing five takes of the song, and you ask the guitar player which was the best take, guitar player is going to tell you the take he played the best on, right? right? Of course, right? right? Uh, you ask the piano player, he's going to tell you the track that he didn't make any mistakes on, right? Okay. You ask the drummer, the drummer's going to say number three felt the best. 
right? Because the drummer's listening to everything, right? He's listening to keep everything together. And the bass player is more like a drummer, you know what I mean? Where you're listening to everything, you're trying to make sure that thing feels good. Now, of course, that's not true uh, in a general sense, but you get you get the idea, you know what I mean? And uh, so as a bass player, I think I was I was trained to listen to the whole thing. But even more importantly, when I started producing, it made me a better bass player, you know? Because I started realizing how much a pain in the ass bass players were trying to play the licks that they practiced in at, at home on your record that don't have nothing to do with the licks that they practice at home. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I recognize, oh man, this guy, yeah, you know, or this guy, you know, he wanted to put this Afro-Cuban beat on this song, even though it, the song didn't call for it. You know what I mean? So you start to listen to the whole thing. And as a bass player, you start trying to play stuff that works, stuff that helps the song. If you can make it cool and impressive, that's cool. But the first thing you got to do is make sure that you're helping the song. 100%. So what is your approach to dealing with those situations as a producer, even as a like a band leader, when somebody's maybe like uh, trying to bring something that just doesn't, isn't working? Well, early on, I just decided to play the bass myself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not even being funny. I just, it's just, you know, it's one less thing for me to worry about. You right. know what I mean? Let me just make sure that at least the bass, and it's not like the, the other guys were doing anything wrong sometimes, but because I play bass, I hear, you know, I hear You wanted to play way. what you hear, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, might as well do that. Um, with other musicians, you know, one of your one of your talents as a producer has to be knowing how to communicate to guys. You know what I mean? And different guys, you can communicate different ways, you know? You can say, hey, man, listen, I need you to listen. Turn the singer up in your headphones, okay? Because I need you to hear, and I need you to play in between their lines if you're going to play something extra. Don't play stuff stepping on their lines, okay? You know? Or sometimes if I know the musician well, I say, you're playing too damn much, okay? <laughs> Come on, man. Right? You know what I mean? I appreciate that. I'm not going to say that, that. Gonna say that to that. somebody I know. I mean, I don't, somebody I don't know. Yeah, but if it's you know, if, you know, like somebody was like a brother to me, I said, "Come on, man, just play that." And you know, like Miles used to say to me, "Just play that and shut up." You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> that communication is, awesome. is everything, man. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, uh, how do you get a musician to understand, you know, what you need from them? You know, and a lot of it is just calling the right guy. You know, that's why a lot of producers. You notice a lot of producers, man. An artist will come in and say, hey, I'd like to use my band. You know what I mean? And they'll use the band and just go, you know what? I got to use my guys. You know what I mean? Because your guys are playing like with a lot of energy and everything, but the precision isn't there, you know? And, you know, sometimes you need a guy with energy. You know what I mean? So the other flip side of it is, you know, I need some more. I need guys who aren't studio musicians because they're just playing like this is just another date. You know what I mean? And I need some guys whose life depends on playing well on this record, you know? So you got to know who to call. Was it difficult uh, to go from being a session bassist and uh, producer to being an artist? Yeah. I don't know if it's difficult, but, you know, you know, as a session bassist, um, you had to be able to switch heads, okay? I'm playing 
on a Carly Simon record. I'm playing on an Elton John record. I'm playing with Sly and Robbie, a reggae record. I'm playing with McCoy Tyner, a jazz record. You know what I mean? That was what life was like. Grover Washington Jr., Roberta Flack, uh, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey. So you had to switch heads and figure out what was right for each of these dates. It's exactly the opposite as an artist. You got to decide who you are and you got to come with a real clear point of view. Like, this is what I'm about. And if you if you buy my music, it's because you want to hear this point of view. That's why everybody knows me for like um, playing with my thumb. You know what I mean? Because um, when I started doing my own records, I said, okay, I play a lot of different styles, but this is the one that has the most clear identity, you know, because it's full frequency, you know, playing with your thumb is full frequency. Yeah. You know, you can get it. It can grab attention. It can grab your ear, you know? So I decided when I was, I made a couple of records where I wasn't kind of, I was still trying to find myself. But once I settled in, I said, I'm going to use this sound as my solo voice, as my artist voice. And uh, I'll do other things. You know, I still play on other people's records from time to time, but, when I make Marcus Miller records, I'm going to use that as the anchor, that sound. And I'll change things. And I play, you know, fretless bass and all sorts of basses on my album. But the ones that, um, you know, the kids are going to put on YouTube are going to be the ones where I'm, um, you know, playing with my thumb. How important do you think it is for young bass players to try and find their identity and their sound? It depends on what you want to do. You know, like some guys are not going to be musicians. So if you can play just like Victor Wooten, you're going to be a star in your neighborhood and you're going to be very, you know, you know, very comfortable doing what you're doing. Nothing wrong with that. You know, if you want to be a studio musician, you know, you got to learn how to play like um, different, different styles. You got to have a clear bass sound, a solid bass sound. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to recognize as you. But you'll get, you know, there's a lot of studio bass players who you don't recognize who it is, but they work all the time, you know. If you want to be a bass solo artist, okay, that's another thing, you know. You need to, or just an artist at all, you know, you need to find a unique, hopefully you have a unique point of view. You need to figure out how to express that point of view. And it's tough, man, you know, because if you find it, right, if you find a unique sound and it resonates People like it, and you can figure out how to make music around it. That's a win. But, man, there's so many guys who have unique sounds, and everybody goes, hey, man, that's that's great, but I don't need it. You know, good luck with your solo career. And if that doesn't jump off, you be out there by yourself, you know? Right. Um, imagine how many bass players in the early 70s insisted on playing fretless bass only, right? Insisted on using their back pickup only. And just never got anywhere because people were like, dude, there's already sound like Jocko. <laughs> sound like you're playing guitar. No, I'm talking about before Jocko. Oh, before. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they like, hey man, there's no, there's no place for that in our band. You know, Jocko just, first of all, he was so supremely talented Yeah. that, you know, he put it across, you know, but he's one in a million. Right. Right. He's one in a million. So my route was, I started off learning how to play like everybody. Right. And then when I realized I was at a certain point in my career and I could probably go further, if I could develop a clearly identifiable sound, that's when I said, okay, which one of these sounds that I have now is the one that I want to go with? You know, so I kind of hedged my bet, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and fell into where, where I am now. 
But, um, you know, I think your first thing is if you're trying to be like successful and being able to play music for the rest of your life, you better cover all your bases at first, you know, and then see what else you can achieve. Excellent advice. What, um, <laughs> no, I mean, really, you know, everybody's got to f- build that foundation first and foremost. If you don't, I mean, you don't have to. If you don't, you just got slimmer chances. You better be a genius. Got it. Okay. Better be a genius. You better be Stanley Clark. You know what I mean? You better be Jocko Pastorius. Um, but if you cover all your bases, you can stay in the game and maybe you'll eventually develop a sound that uh, people are feeling, you know? Yeah. What made you decide to even be an artist? Um. You know, the one thing about being a sideman is you live by your telephone. Yes, truth. And, excuse me. you know, people love to find the new thing, right? Just like they found me when I was 18, 19. So I wasn't going to sit around and and, uh, wait for for myself to be the old guy, you know? They got a saying, man. Somebody told me, a studio musician told me this joke. He said, see if I can get it right. He said, there's four stages to being a studio musician. Who's Marcus Miller? Get me Marcus Miller. Get me a young Marcus Miller. Who's Marcus Miller? <laughs> <laughs> That's the life of a studio musician, you know? I, lo- I love that. I love so that, So after man. stage two, I was like, oh, hell no. I'm going to make my own records, you know, try to create my own opportunities, you know? That's so smart. And you did it. And he, you're... Yeah, and plus, you know, I was producing and I was writing music for movies. I was very restless soul, you know what I mean? So playing the bass was part of my my life as a musician, you know, but I was always writing music. You know, somebody told me early on, you know, you're not a complete musician unless you are composing too. Right. Which is not necessarily true, but somebody told me that when I was young enough to believe it and I jumped into it. So I started writing music. Um composing arranging you know and um i was always the youngest guy in the band but i you know i could hear everybody's parts so i'd start to you know quietly suggest maybe you should play this instead of that you know what i mean and stuff sounded better so people started giving me that role and so producing and arranging uh, i've been doing that as long as i've been playing bass got you that's amazing i as a as a young lad i started off playing drums and uh i I worked with Don Henley as a kid. I was in his Boys of Summer video. I was the little kid playing drums. I don't know if really? you remember that. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and he what was, year all, was that? That man? was nineteen eighty-five. Eighty-five. Yeah, I was wow. eight years old. Wow. So, yeah. So, but one, I remember one of the things that he told me. He was always very kind to myself and my family. But he always told me, "You got to play something aside from drums because you're never mm-hmm. gonna." make any money just playing drums you got to write music you got to learn mm. other instruments so mm. i picked up the bass and i can play guitar and keys and stuff like that too but right. i'm a bass player um right. but i i do always remember that advice and I, I think uh it's definitely relevant i was just um you know one of my heroes uh as a kid was a baseball player willie mays you ever heard of willie mays mm-hmm. yes and willie mays you know we we all knew him as one of the greatest center fielders ever. And he was a great hitter, you know, but when you listen to him tell the story, he said, Oh yeah, I was a pitcher. I was a catcher. I was a first baseman. I played every, 
every position. And my dad told me I had to learn every position because you need to know what um, is going through their minds, what their responsibility is. It'll make you a better center field, you know? And it's the same thing, man. When I was a kid, I would sit, you know, we had a, a school orchestra. I would forget my mouthpiece, my clarinet mouthpiece. I would forget it on purpose. Oh. Your punishment, if you forget your mouthpiece, was he'd make you sit in the percussion section. I love that. You know what I mean? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, punish me. You know what I mean? I'm playing like, and then uh, sometimes I sit with the brass players just to see what it was like in the back of the orchestra. You know, it's clarinet, you play right under the conductor's arms. You know what I mean? So you got to be right. But in the back, they're having a party back there. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, man. So, man, it was like just to get to know everybody's mentality and what it's like to play the instrument was fascinating to me, man. So by the time I started producing, man, I, you know, I played a horn. I can talk to a horn player in his language. You know, I can talk to a piano player in their language. Um, so I think it made me a better musician. So let's yep. go back Go back to your uh, kind of your signature sound, your sound. You, you're, you're 77 Fender Jazz. Um, it's been your main bass for years, right? Mm-hmm. What's what do you think is so special about that bass to you? Um, well, the important the important words are to you. You know what I mean? Because when I was looking to buy a bass in 1977, everyone was saying, you know, the 70s Fender basses are horrible. They put too much lacquer on them. They're too thick. They're too heavy. Leo Fender had sold Fender maybe 10 years earlier, eight to 10 years earlier to CBS. So the big corporation now don't get a seventies bass, man. If you can find a sixties bass, that's the real thing. But I'm like 17 years old. I don't want a used bass. I want one shiny in the case. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I got a, a new jazz bass, 1977 had a maple neck because the maple maple neck looked flyer than the brown neck. You know what I mean? The light colored neck looked cool. That was, that's why I got it. You know, there was only Simple as that. two or three bases that you had a choice of back in 1977. You get a Fender, you get a Gibson, or if you play rock, you might get a Rickenback. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that was it. So it was a pretty easy choice. Um, And I played it, man, and uh, got into studio work. Uh, Roger Sadowski, who was doing the guitar technician stuff for a lot of studio cats, suggested I put an onboard preamp because that way I could dial in a, a more complete sound, you know, because if you play a passive bass, even though you think you're playing passive, once that sound gets to the engineer, he's going to start twisting knobs. You don't even realize, <laughs> you know what I mean? You think, oh, man, I play passive. Yeah, sure you do, buddy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> go in the control room and look and see what the engineer is doing to your sound, you know? <laughs> so, um, uh, but the, the preamp gave me uh, more control so I could get a good sound. And, and the engineer, I said, what are you doing to the bass? He said, I'm not doing anything. I'm just adding a little compression to it, you know? And so that was the beginning. Uh, everything on the bass, everything else on the bass is stock. Stock fender pickups. Oh, the badass bridge. Okay. You know? Somebody told me this, you can get more sustain out of a badass bridge. So put a badass bridge, put the preamp in, and uh, that was it. Everything else is is stock. But what I did do is um, once I got a sound, a setting on the bass that worked, yeah. I never changed it. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, okay. yeah. I never changed. I didn't realize you should probably change it for different 
things, you know. So I'm playing with my fingers, I'm playing with my thumb. And I realized with my fingers, the notes weren't jumping off the bass the way I wanted them to, right? It's probably because I had a, a, I had a good amount of bass added in my preamp. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of scooping out the mid-range by default, you know? Yeah. I didn't know. All I knew is, man, I'm playing fingers down. These notes aren't jumping out. Let me play this with my thumb, right? Not plucking. Just playing regular bass lines, but with my thumb to get that little more frequencies, more higher frequencies. And I started doing it, man, on dates where nobody's using their thumb for this kind of stuff, you know? Luther Vandross singing ballads, and I'm like, boom. Bam, bam. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it became a thing. You know, I didn't even know it was different. I was just doing it in my own personal world just to make it sound right, you know? But um, so the bass I chose and putting the preamp in affected the choices I made uh, when I was playing. You know what I mean? So I got very, um, I had a lot of dynamics that I could use my thumb. It wasn't just slapping, you know, like a for a bass solo. It was like yeah. a lot of different colors that you can get with it. And I use those colors because my bass was encouraging me to do that, you know? Right. That's so interesting. You were, I mean, you were adapting to make it work, whatever you had to do. Yeah. You know, that, notes on your bass that don't jump, that, that don't play as, as uh, they're not as full, uh-huh. you know, like that classic uh, C on your G string, you know, that lasts for like, you know, one-tenth of a second before it dies out. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Well, I use that note every once in a while, knowing it's not going to, to last so long, you know, if you need it, you know. Otherwise, you play it on your D string, you know. So you, you if you keep changing instruments, you know, you don't have to make decisions. You don't have to make choices, you know. Oh, this is that? Let, let me switch to the, the my other bass and play in it. It's real easy to do it. But I was trying to make everything happen on the jazz bass, on my on my particular jazz bass. So I think that gave me more tools in my hands, you know? Right. That's awesome. What about strings? Uh Stanley Clark, uh, I was using I was using flat wounds like everybody back in the day. Uh-huh. And then I asked the guy at the music store, how do I sound like Stanley Clark? And he said, Here, take these roto sounds. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't make me sound like Stanley Clark. <laughs> but uh, you know, I kind of stayed with it, and so I, you know, kind of gravitated to the round wound yeah. string. You know, I I used um, Rotos for a while, Dean Markley. You know, um, it was a great string. Uh, then uh, Dr for a very long time, Dr. And now I use Dunlops, but they're all round wound. You know what I mean? And uh, and then again because I didn't feel like carrying three bases on my back through the streets of New York. I had to figure out how to get a flat wound sound when necessary. So I would um, start using mutant mutant techniques, you know what I mean? Like just to, or shoot, man, I was sticking toilet paper under my, under my strings, you know, <laughs> so I could play finger style and still get a deader sound, you know? Okay. And uh, you've got to use Charmin, no, Downy. I don't remember which one. Oh, you're not messing around. You actually did. <laughs> no. I actually stuffed toilet paper okay. under the under the strings. I don't know what brand it was. I'm just joking about that. But yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, man, if you hear a record by David Sanborn called Upfront, really cool record. 
and you hear the first song, man, I'm just playing like, you know, s- strings of dead and thumpy. You yeah. know what I mean? That's a toilet paper bass right there. You know, <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love that, man. The toilet paper bass. <laughs> I need that sound. I need that toilet paper sound, man. Hey, you know, because, you know, the old Fender bases, they had mutes underneath those uh, pickup covers. You know, they had yeah. foam or felt or whatever it was sitting on the strings, you know, so. Yeah. I actually used Dunlop strings as well, but how did you come to use uh, those strings? Um, I was looking for, uh, you know, I've been using uh, DRs for a long time, and then I said I want something a little bit more growly, uh-huh. you know, and... Um, Daryl Andrews uh, asked me to check out these strings, you know, and, you know, they were really just getting into making strings on a, on a big level. You know what I mean? So they were like, tell, tell me, tell me what's wrong with this string. You know, tell me, tell me how it works on the battlefield. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, I really dig them, man. They really, um, they really give you um, a little bit more uh, edge. You know what I mean? I was playing in the eighties through the nineties, you know, you got it like, like it was a smooth sound, you know what I mean? And like, yeah. okay, enough of that, you know, let's try to, to get a little bit more angry here, you know? And so. I like the growl. Like, I like the growl, <laughs> man. The, the growl exactly. is good. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. So we, we, we spoke about your, um, your basses and some strings and technique. I mean, those are parts of the, I guess, ingredients to your signature sound. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you absolutely have to have that goes into the, into the recipe? Uh, to be honest with you, man, you know, it really all comes down to your, your choice, what you actually play. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the tools, you know, and they definitely do help. You know, you don't want to be playing some great stuff and nobody can understand what you're playing because your bass isn't clear right but like i told you man um i learned my base you know i learned the pluses and the minuses of my base my particular instrument you know and that really helped me you know really i started you know i said oh i really know what will work right here because i know my base does this you know what i mean and that really helps you got to get a clear a good sound but then you got to play something cool in the end right very cool. All right, let's move over to your. You said you were doing a lot of um, scoring, film scoring, which I think is exciting. Um, most people, or a lot of people, don't know that you've done a lot of it. Uh, how'd you get into it? Um, end of the eighties, um, guy named Reginald Hudlin was just graduating from film school, and you know, at the end of film school, you have to do like a short film as part of your like your graduation thesis, and so his little short film. You know, he sent it to some movie companies after he graduated and New Line Cinema, which was just starting, they picked it up. And so they said, we want to make a full feature film out of this. So he called me. He said, look, man, I've been listening to your music, you know, and I think you'd be great. Love for you to do it. I said, man, I really haven't done a lot of film work. You know, I did some stuff with Miles, but it was just songs that they placed in the film as opposed to writing music specifically for the underscore of the film. He said, no, nah, man, you'll be fine. He sent me like a VHS player, you know, with VHS tapes, you yeah. know? Yeah. And uh, I just watched the film on TV and started writing music and uh, didn't really know what I was doing, but I just tried to kind of 
write what I thought would be appropriate. And he came in, man, he said, man, this is fantastic, but I can't hear anything my actors are saying. <laughs> I kinda, you said that's I right. kind of overdid it, you know what I mean? <laughs> I got you. A little bit, you know? And uh, but that was my first lesson in scoring, you know what I mean? And it wasn't it wasn't long before I kind of got the hang of it. it was, the movie was called House Party. It starred. Oh yeah, uh, Kid and Play. Yeah, yeah, I love so that, that movie. Was my first, that was my first film. It did really well. And then Eddie did a uh, Reggie did an Eddie Murphy film called Boomerang, which I did. And from then on, you know, I started getting calls from a lot of different people. You know, and it was at a time when my wife and I had young kids. So this was a good way for me to stay home, yeah. you know, hello studio at the house so I could stay home and write and be around the kids when they couldn't understand why, when I was leaving, you know what yeah. I mean? So it's kind of like my day job for a few years. So, um, right now, man, I'm probably 34 films, 35 films in, you know, congratulations was, on that. But it was like, it was like my, uh, day job. People didn't even know it was me. It was like, um, you know, the movie people would say, you know, there's a jazz musician named Marcus Miller too, you know? And I go, <laughs> yeah, I heard of him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is awesome. And it was, it was, it was a trip, man, because when, when I started touring again, I was still getting calls for the movies. Um, but I wouldn't tell the movie director that I was going to be out of town. So what I would do is I just, I'd bring two racks, like five feet tall with the VHS players and the tapes and these synth modules so that I could work at night after my gigs, wherever I was. So I'd be in hotels in Paris, you know, at 2 a.m. writing this music. And the director didn't know where I was, you know. Um, but then the internet started and the director could look on your website. Man, <laughs> are you in Portugal? <laughs> I'm like, kind of, yeah, you know? Um, but then the internet progressed to the point where it really didn't matter. You know what I mean? Because I had relationships with directors. They just send me what you got. You know, we talk on the phone. And then at the end of the conversation, they said, okay, so where are we talking to you? I'm in Japan. Okay. Oh, Ohio goes <laughs> uh. <laughs> You know what I mean? It, it yeah, got to be a yeah. joke. You know what I mean? So it was really interesting to do it during the kind of, uh, the, uh, the, the realm of the internet kind of coming to fruition, you know? Yeah. So with the family, I mean, uh, I have um, four boys myself Woo! and, and <laughs> I've been touring since I was, you know, 18 years old or something like that. But um, that's all they've known is, you know, me being on tour. And that right. must've been a, a great sort of a refreshing change for them and for you as well, you know, trying to balance your, your family life and your career and being able to do that from home. Yeah, no, it was, it was beautiful. Now my studio was right. We got two boys and two girls, right. And the studio was right next door to the boys room. And this was before digital recording, right? So everything was on tape. So every time you were working on a song, you know, you're probably too young, but you had to stop and rewind and it went, you know, yeah, rewind yeah. Sound, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And my boys, to this day, if they hear that rewind sound, they get sleepy. You know, it's like, oh, <laughs> time to go to sleep. You know what I mean? Dad's working in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that rewind, the rewind sound is like a, a constant. You know, music, music, stop. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but what I'm saying is that it became a normal thing for them. Just like you said, like going on tour was a normal thing. 
it became a normal thing for them to hear the music coming in from the other room, you know? So they're, they're very musical, you know? 32 and 31, the boys are, and the girls are 29 and 27. So okay. you, you know you got a hit when your kids say, put that back on, Daddy. Yes, yes. Whoa, whoa. This isn't just a hit for this little audience that I'm aiming at. This is kind of a bigger, you know, kids <laughs> saying, put that on, put that on. Wow. Well, they, they're not going to lie, that's for sure. Oh, and they, yeah, they, they don't ever <laughs> lie. How do you stay yeah. fresh musically, man? Uh, staying fresh musically, you know, put yourself in different environments, man, you know? You got a studio at the house? I do. Yeah. Um, I've been in this studio here for like close to 10 years now, you know? Sometimes I just need to write a song somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Or on another instrument. You know, most of the stuff I write on the piano, unless okay. it's a bass, bass line driven song, you know, but yeah. most of the stuff I write is on the piano. But I'll just go. I used to just call Dave Sanborn. Uh, can I come to your house and write on your piano? You know, the piano was good, but it wasn't the piano. It was just it's a different environment, different things hitting you, you know, different sound of the yeah. room. You know what I mean? You just try to get freshness wherever you can find freshness you know you hear a beat you go oh man that's an old beat that's from 1967 you know what i mean let, let, let me put that 67 beat up and see if i come up with something you know surrounding yourself with different musicians about seven years ago i completely changed changed my band you know and got a bunch of younger guys who came with a different head you know what i mean and so even when we were playing the same music they approached it differently and as a band leader, I tried not to put any handcuffs on them. Say, come on, man, let me see what, you, see, see what you got with this, you know? And that keeps your music changing, you know? I bet they were stoked for that. I bet they were happy about that. Yeah, and then, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of um, really talented people on, on the bass these days, you know? Uh, playing with all sorts of uh, really good technique, you know? Um, a lot of it is because they can finally see how other bass players are doing things. Mm. You know, when I was coming up, you couldn't see anything. You're 12 years old, you're too young to go to the concerts. And even if you can go to the concerts, you're so far in the back, you can't see what Stanley Clark, what his fingers are doing. You yeah. know what I mean? So you had to use your ears, man. You know, you sit there with the turntable and we got to be experts with the needle, like a DJ, where you could drop the needle right at that bass look that you're trying to learn over and over again, you know? And so what I find is that a lot of young musician technique is off the chain, ears suck. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they've never had to actually listen and try to figure out what's going on. You know what I mean? They've all only they've only seen it. And while that allows you to do a lot of things that you wouldn't be able to get to, you know what I mean? Because some of this stuff is hard to hear, but we had to really rely on our ears, you know? What is, what's challenging you musically these days? Anything? Um, musically, um, I'm, trying, I'm still working on my articulation, making sure my ideas, especially when I'm improvising, making sure my ideas are clear. My sentences are clear. They start when, when I want them to start and they stop when I want them to stop. Not when my fingers say, oh, I don't have any more strings. In other words, trying not to play from my fingers. I'm trying to play from my head, from my ears, you know, and have enough technique to play what I imagine. Okay. You know, 
when we were kids, young musicians, after the jam session, we'd sit in somebody's car and we'd trade scatting licks, right? The radio would be on, right? And it's playing and we'd be scatting to the radio and we'd trade licks, trying to cut each other with inventiveness, with creativity. Like this doesn't have anything to do with what I can reach on my instrument. This has to do with my imagination. Got you. Know? you. Got you. And, and so, you know, what, what, you know, if you're an improviser, you know, I mean, it's not, I don't improvise everything, but when you're improvising, it's about imagining what could be cool right here and instantly knowing how to get to it. Like what, like we're talking, you know what I mean? I got an idea in my head. I got to put words together to express it to you. Right. Right. And you got an idea in your head when you're sewing, you got to figure out, okay, what scale is that I'm here, you know? And, uh, how do I finger that? You know, how do I articulate? How do I, how do I, uh, execute it, you know? And so I'm working on that all the time. Get a beat going. Sometimes I'll sing and play, you know, like George Benson, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, man. I'll sing and play just to, just to connect the ideas to my fingers, you know? And then just making sure my uh, sound is clear, making sure that, um, cause I don't really practice thumb stuff, you know? I practice everything else, you know, but every once in a while I say, oh man, better practice the thumb stuff because you're going to get halfway through the show and your shoulders start going to go start going, <laughs> hey man, <laughs> what you doing, man? <laughs> oh man. What, uh, what, what brings you joy, man? What brings me joy, man, is um, realizing that we're in the joy business, you know? I realize it after every show. Man, you see the looks on people's faces, man, and you just realize, you know, a lot of artists, a lot of artists would say, I'm an artist, I'm not an entertainer. Dude, if you're on a stage and there are people who are paying to see you, there's a level of entertainment in what you do. Now, are you solely trying to entertain people without any kind of any kind of standards about what you're doing? You know, hopefully it's a lot about you expressing yourself. But at the end of the day, man, if people are yelling and screaming, you're bringing joy, man, in a world that sometimes needs, you know, that sounds corny, but. It's know, true. It's not corny. It's true. <laughs> you know, and you, you, you meet people. Cause I was a studio musician. I was telling you, man, I was a studio musician for 20, close to 30 years. And, um, I never, con I never connected with the audience. I finished this, the, the record, moved on to the next record, never left New York, right? When I finally started doing my own gigs, I finally started meeting the people who had been listening to this music all these years and having them tell you stories about what this record meant, what this record meant, you know, what you mean to them, you know? And, you know, people tell me I mean really special things to them to the point where I don't want them to meet the real me. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I could never live up to that mess. You know what I mean? Okay, you think I'm this guy? Okay, see you later. Keep keep thinking that, you know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, you realize, man, music is really powerful, you know? And uh, sometimes you got to be careful to start to get too heavy. You know what I mean? When, once you realize the power of music, you know, okay, well, this song is going to, you know, create peace in the world. This song, you know, okay, that's cool. But, you know, you got to remember why you got into music too, which is like, this is cool. This yeah. makes me feel good. This makes people feel good. You know what I mean? So I try to keep that balance. I dig that, man. I dig that. 
finally, uh, what advice do you have for some young players out there? Any player? Um, yeah, for for players, I would try to stay in touch with why you started playing music, you know? Or more importantly, try to stay in touch with what drew you to music, you know? What made you go, oh, man, I like that, you know? Like, I saw that first bass player, man, and he's playing with them lines and went, and he was going down the neck and that stuff looked so cool man i was like yo i gotta do that you know <laughs> and you got to keep that spark you know you got to keep that joy and remember that particularly if you're starting to get paid for what you do there's so many people who would would love to trade places with you you know who would love to be able to make a living playing music you know, so you got to keep that in mind, man, you know, especially you guys out there on the road complaining because the hotel doesn't have good internet, you know what I mean? Or whatever it is that you, that you complaining about, man. I know a lot of people, man, in their office cubicles right now who would gladly trade with you. They get a mobile internet plan, by the way. Okay. But they would gladly trade with you. You know what I mean? So keep that in mind, man. Keep Keep in mind that you, you're 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 in a special group, you know. That is a very refreshing reminder, and much appreciated, and some great advice, man. I really do appreciate you, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on here. No problem, man. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. That is our show for today. I really want to send a big thank you to all of our guests that have so graciously come on and shared their stories, experience, expertise, and passion for the bass and music. And a huge thank you to Dunlop and the Bass Freaks team for really digging in and putting in some serious time and effort to make this podcast come to life. It has been an absolute pleasure to be able to work on this with you guys. And finally, thank you so much again to everyone out there that has given us your time and your ear. We hope that this has been a source of inspiration, information, and entertainment for you. And truly hope that you've enjoyed all the episodes so far. On behalf of the entire Bass Freaks team, thank you so much for joining us. Stay healthy and kind. Spread love, good vibes, and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path and just play. I'm Josh Paul. And I hope to see you all out there sometime soon. Thank you to Dunlop for making the show possible. And be sure to check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts. Talk soon. Mm-hmm.